Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We're well into a new year, and in some cities that means news media and leaders follow the number of shootings that have taken place so far. But often lost in those numbers are the stories of the people affected by gun violence. Stories about victims, but also their family, and the impact of these losses on the wider community. Today where we live, we spend time talking about media coverage of gun violence. You've seen and heard stories about the recent shooting death of a Yale graduate student in New Haven. Kevin Zhang's death has been covered locally, but has also caught the attention of national, even some international media. How does coverage of Mr. Zhang's untimely death compare to others who've been lost to gun violence? And what does that coverage say about the lives that are valued and the lives that are forgotten? You can join us today, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we'll hear from Reverend Stephen Cousin, a New Haven community leader who's pastor at Bethel AME Church in the Elm City. Now, one of our talk show interns, Jakaina Collier, pitched today's show. She's a New Haven resident who noticed how different parts of the community were reacting to the death of Kevin Zhang. Community members like Angel Hubbard, whose cousin, Devon DJ Coward, was murdered in New Haven last September. Here she is speaking at the New Haven City Hall February 13th after the death of Yale graduate student Kevin Zhang. I know when Kevin was murdered in East Rock, every news station was in East Rock neighborhood. Yeah. So on behalf of my cousin that did not attend Yale, but he attended Gateway and he attended Lincoln Tech. Yeah. What made his life matter more? They both were army vets. They both were murdered in the city of New Haven. That audio is from the New Haven Independent, which has covered DJ Coward's story extensively. We invited Paul Bass back onto the show. He's editor of the New Haven Independent to talk more about the paper's coverage of now Kevin Zhang's um, shooting death. Paul Bass, welcome back to the show. Lucy, it's great to hear you. Now, uh, I mentioned uh, Kevin Zhang uh, was murdered earlier this month. So talk about, you have a small team, uh, but you're also very committed to New Haven. You know that city very well. How did your team decide to cover this story and how did you do it? Well, it was deja vu the minute the murder happened. It was a Saturday night and people were calling all over, not on our team, just people in New Haven, especially in the black community saying, oh hell, this victim, the word got out quickly, the victim wasn't black because we're so used to black people getting killed in New Haven that it's just almost like a statistic. Shouldn't be, we don't want it to be, but we knew that as soon as they said East Rock, Asian American victim, the minute word was, is he a Yale? And we're thinking back to two key murders in our last, 30 years that got as much attention as all other murders combined. One of them, Christian Prince, which is a really an amazing story. It changed the whole course of our city because of the attention it got in uh, 1991. 
and then um, Annie Lay, of course, and of course, Suzanne Chauvin, the third one mm -hmm. in uh, the late 90s. So we knew that we were going to have a balancing act that we don't write long stories about every murder and not every murder in the city gets, although they do, one thing people don't realize is that the police department's homicide team does throw down and have the entire team work around the clock in the first few days because that's when a case is hottest and that's when the most clues are possible. But we knew right away it was gonna be like that and we weren't sure how we were gonna balance it. And I had, it's not PTSD, but I had these memories of the Annie Lay murder mm -hmm. in 2009 when there were so many reporters, there were 50 to 100 national reporters in town, which isn't happening this time. But I just remember seeing in front of the police station when police spokesman Joe Avery at the time came out and he had nothing new to report. And it was said we had nothing new to report. And they came out and they said, can you say that on camera? And there was such an, a stampede and a competition that an NBC national news director got stampeded and knocked to the ground and injured and just so they could oh have gosh. this guy say no comment. Whereas the endemic issues of violence in our community, the humanity of the people's lives are lost. It's a challenge. And um, we in the media do not do a good enough job. We're very aware by this time of the way certain values are, are valued more than others. And there are all sorts of other factors that come into play, such as a case like this when you had a suburban police department let the suspect go an hour after the murder in a way that would be kind of bizarre if the suspect were not were black although we'll find out more but this guy's mm -hmm. circling around in a vacant uh, metal scrap metal yard that looks like a scene out of you know a marlon brandon movie in the dark on a saturday night doing wheelies by the railroad track gets stuck and the police come and all of a sudden he's left alone at a hotel with no charges no questioning no search and he skips town so i mean there are good issues here there's a nationwide search that do get to criminal justice there's one aspect of this case that hasn't come out yet that actually will be relevant to crime in new haven but in general we saw the script before we know the story it's a horrible thing that happened kevin jang it's a sad story about his relationship with this woman who had come here from mit and they were in love and they sound like you know just wonderful people and you know the working theory is the guy who is now the person of interest came from MIT and had had contact with her. So, you know, draw your own conclusion until it's legal to say what was probably up. But, you know, that happens every day, you know, the it, it, not every day, but, you know, every week or two when there's a murder in a city in Connecticut, someone had a life and had dreams that got cut short when they're young, when this happens. And um, we don't do a good enough. The media is a reflection of our society doesn't do a good enough job valuing lives equally. Now, we talked about uh, Kevin Zhang's uh, recent uh, shooting death. This was the sixth homicide in New Haven this year. So looking at uh, the uh, shooting deaths that have happened in New Haven uh, before uh, Kevin Zhang's death, uh, how did you cover those those shootings? Okay, so there was only one we went to the scene of, and that's just, we have a small staff, and I went to the scene of one that was a double one that sounded kind of interesting. But... It's more the relevant question, I think, is over the last year, because we've had an uptick mm. in homicides in the last year. And there have been six or seven cases where we did a deep dive into the person. And there was a reason. One is sometimes it's just not information available. Um, a lot of times no one's talking. But, you know, there was a case of a, of a young man who was a boxing champ and doing great and got hit by a straight bullet. There was a Hill House basketball player, Keanu Brown, who, had, who was asleep and a bullet came in her window intended for somebody else 
So I would say, Lucy, that like one out of five times we'll do a deep dive into the person when there are interesting issues in how the case is being investigated, what comes to the fore, we'll write about that. But in none of the other cases so far this year, despite our pressing, have the police been able to have information that made it much of a story yet about the murder itself. Um, they, none of them have been, none of them have people of interest. None of them have public leads. None of them have anything filed. There was one case early on that I went to scene up where there were all sorts of interesting suggestions that I then unpublished because what the police thought at first wasn't true. So um, in the last year we've done, I, I think it's six or seven deep dives on people. And one of them was Kevin Jang. Hmm. Uh, when we talk about the events after uh, the death of Kevin Zhang, uh, when we hear about how, uh, as you mentioned, the police department is working really hard in those uh, days right after, but how did you see the community from uh, City Hall and Yale University, how did they come together right after his death? And, and is that a marked difference from what you see in other uh, homicides, Paul? Well, every time a Yosun gets murdered, and this is not often, the mayor's in a tough position, whoever the mayor is, because everyone's watching to say, you're gonna say this yearly matters more. So the mayor takes a step back, shows sympathy because our current mayor went to Yale Forestry School like the um, well, the people involved here. Um, so they, they were trying not to make too big a deal about it, but there was so much press coverage that they actually had a press conference at some point when Yale wanted to give its um, condolences and when they asked for the public's help. So that was different. There's not. There's occasionally a press conference, but not usually. There has to be a reason. But finally, they said, you know, and I, I spoke to police people, too. They also were under incredible pressure not to. In the past, Yale would really lean and Yale felt like they ran our police department. And now they know better to stand back and try to order that kind of thing. But, um, you know, when I saw other Yale murders, I remember behind the scenes, the public officials were taking a lot more interest in the case because it was reality that the whole country was watching how New Haven handled it. But publicly, I think that the public officials tried to balance acting like this more important than others and responding to the request for um, attention. You know, it's a neighborhood where there is not usually shooting and certainly not homicide. And their people have a lot more social media. So there's immediately a lot more up. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I kind of saw that balancing act going on. You're hearing Paul Bass here on Where We Live. Again, he's editor of the New Haven Independent as we uh, take a, a deeper dive into how news media covers uh, gun violence, uh, particularly after the recent death of this uh, Yale graduate student, Kevin Zhang, earlier this month. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. A part of today's show is to also talk about uh, best practices in journalism when we want to tell impactful stories and to provide coverage that our communities want, but to do it in a way that is very transparent. So joining us now to talk about that is Kelly McBride, NPR's public editor. She's also senior vice president at the Pointer Institute, where she's the chair of journalism ethics. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, we played that clip of a family member of another uh, man, Connecticut man, uh, who was killed uh, in a shooting death. Uh, again, uh, this is someone who was a black man. He was also an Army veteran. And the woman was talking about how uh, news doesn't cover her cousin's uh, murder um, the way that they have been when, when somebody affiliated with Yale University. Uh, there have been community members in New Haven, and Paul can, can speak to this, that kind of question how race and class dynamics uh, play a part in news coverage. And so when you look at this particular story, does it reflect some of the broader problems that we have in journalism, Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. We have um, for years and years and years in local media outlets, both newspapers and television stations, um, we have made choices about how we cover crime that magnify racial inequity and bias. Um, and by that, I mean um, exactly what you are seeing playing out here. Um, and also um, the, the um, you, what, what you see happen is um, traditionally in areas where, where the police say there are a lot of crime, um, the local news does not give those stories much coverage. And then when you have something that seems unusual, um, we go whole hog in journalism. And the problem with that is, is we're letting the police dictate how we cover our stories. And we are essentially becoming stenographers as journalists for police, rather than making our own independent decisions about which stories we cover. Um, we, we're too reliant on the police. And, and th there's, there's lots of reasons for this, um, but, but I am encouraging newsrooms everywhere and I'm working with a handful of them to completely restructure their crime reporting because the, the reality is, is that in journalism, we, we've gone through this year of looking, since George Floyd's death, of looking at just how deep the inequities are in our criminal justice system. But the problem with that is, is that media magnify and amplify those inequities. And when we do that, we in journalism are becoming part of the problem. And that's not our role. Our role is to hold the powerful accountable and to, to help citizens participate in democratic society. And instead, we're doing the opposite. We're actually simply becoming an extension of these systemic injustices that we see happening in other parts of society. And so I'm really encouraging journalists. It's hard work because you have to completely rethink how you do your crime coverage. But if we don't do that in journalism and if local news organizations all across the country fail to do that, I really don't think we're going to get very far in um, our our desire to hold law enforcement accountable. When we think about the the crime beat, so to speak, Kelly, often are these reporters, some of the youngest reporters, they're just uh, getting uh, their first jobs. They're learning how to tell stories. And, you know, part of that is also learning to train them. But who are making the decisions in the newsroom about what is newsworthy? Well, yeah, that's that's exactly the problem. Um, and I was one of those young reporters, right? I spent the first seven, eight years of my career as a as a 
quote, public safety reporter. But mostly what I did was go to a bunch of different police agencies and say, hey, what crimes happened? And they would tell me what they thought was interesting. Um, so you can't blame the individual reporters, although they certainly have the power to make a different choice. It's, it's more of a leadership problem. And it takes in a news organization, it takes a senior executive, an editor to say, hey, we're going to cover crime differently. And we're going to completely scrap these habits that we have of just running to the scene when the police say there's something interesting or calling up the police and asking them to tell us what they think is interesting. And we're going to reclaim our role as watchdogs and look more closely at how the police are making choices. And then we're also going to own these disparities that we have, right? Like if you have, if you have 50 murders in a year, and you only highlight, you only do a deep dive into 10% of them. And then you look at those 10% and you realize that there's some serious racial inequities in those 10%. You've, you've got, you have to, you have to own that and you have to answer to it. A lot of newsrooms are also having conversations. I know ours has been for a long time, and that is who is covering the news, who are making the decisions in terms of our backgrounds uh, and not, uh, taking into account where we come from as journalists, what our biases are, and that can shape also what we dis what we deem as newsworthy, Kelly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and frankly, um, you know, in any community in this country, if you ask, particularly black citizens, but, um, but, but Hispanic citizens as well, what systems have been historically prejudiced against them? They will name law enforcement and education, and they will also name the news media. And in many cases, news organizations have fractured relationships with communities of color for exactly these reasons, right? That they, there's been a history of making decisions that harm the black and brown communities. And then when you try and repair that relationship, they look at you and say, well, I, I don't trust you and you don't have anybody who looks like me who works for you. And so, um, so, so it becomes, it becomes a, a, a significant uphill battle to repair those relationships. It doesn't mean that the work shouldn't be done. Um, and it doesn't mean that hiring to make your newsroom staff look like your community, it doesn't mean that that's all you have to do, but it's a really good start because it helps you see stories in a different way and gives you an ability to understand and reflect communities in ways that are going to be inaccessible to you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Now, Kelly McBride, again, is NPR's public editor, and she's senior vice president at the Pointer Institute, where she chairs journalism ethics. I know we just have a few minutes left with you, Kelly. I have to ask, in public media, we're going to be hearing from Connecticut Public Radio's managing editor, Harriet Jones, coming up. Uh, just like Paul Bass's shop, we oftentimes are newsrooms are much smaller. We don't have a lot of resources. But I'm wondering what uh, suggestions you have for public media and how we cover gun violence, and in particular, this kind of story. Uh, oftentimes, NPR will uh, will talk to our newsroom and say, you know, we're really interested in this particular story because of that Yale angle. And so how should uh, newsrooms address that? So, so public media newsrooms don't traditionally have the same hurdles that 
um, commercial media have because they don't historically cover crime the way commercial media do. That said, that said, um, what's happening across the country is that um, commercial media are thinning out their ranks. Um, both newspapers, uh, newspapers have fewer staff members and fewer journalists. And in television, what you have is um, roughly a flat line of employees, but more minutes of programming, which means that they're, they're resource strapped as well. Public media doesn't have huge resources either, but they tend to be growing in most places, those newsrooms, they tend to be adding staff. And so I think this is a really great time to start thinking about how in public media, you start meeting the public safety needs of the community that you serve and coming up with an actual strategy. And it might involve partnering with other commercial media, because like you said, everybody's resource strapped. If you're really interested in serving the public safety needs of your community, rather than just informing them about the most sensational crimes that happen, you need a strategy to do that. And it's and it starts with understanding what those needs are. What do people really need to know to keep themselves safe and to hold their public officials accountable? That's Kelly McBride, NPR's public editor. And again, she chairs the journalism ethics at Pointer Institute, where she's also senior vice president. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Again, today we're talking about how the media covers gun violence. Paul Bass is with us, editor of the New Haven Independent. He's going to stick around as we continue talking about this. And after the conversation, after the break, we'll be hearing from a New Haven community leader. And we'll take your calls to 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about the ways the news media covers gun violence. Why do some shootings get media attention while others do not? How does race and privilege shape gun violence coverage? On Zoom with me is Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent. And joining us now is Reverend Stephen Cousin, pastor at Bethel AME Church in New Haven. Uh, he's also a member of the state's Police Accountability and Transparency Task Force. Reverend Cousin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate to be here. I'd respond to what both Kelly and Paul shared about how newsrooms uh, cover uh, gun violence, particularly shooting deaths of black and brown individuals. And when you have a higher profile incident that happens, like this Yale shooting, the shooting death of this Yale student, Kevin Zhang, uh, the differences and how that Im impacts the community, Reverend Cousin. So to to this latest um, travesty regarding Kevin's death, we, we saw how New Haven, especially urban centers, have always been attributed to violent crime, uh, whether it be a pandemic or before a pandemic. And just this week leading up to his death, on Tuesday, we had a carjacking at a school. And then on Friday, we had bullets 
um, being shot into the house of the assistant superintendent's home. And then on Saturday evening, we had this shooting. And so from my perspective, when I received the phone call Saturday night, I'm thinking that now this violence has spilled into other parts of the city where violence does not normally occur or the violent crime that we're normally reading or, or witnessing. And so I knew that given the variables regarding the city, talking about how Yale needs to do more in providing resources to the city of New Haven and for the state to provide more resources and to see now a Yale student um, tragically die in the way that he did, we knew that was gonna come into play in terms of how it was going to be used with the violence, with the resources. And so I was really fearful about what the retaliation was going to be. We just had a shooting a few years ago, maybe even a year ago, regarding Hamden and the Yale Police Department involving you know, um, Paul Witherspoon and his girlfriend at the time, thankfully no deaths, but we saw back then that Yale was now taking a step back and now patrolling their campus. Now with the shooting happening in East Rock, are they gonna come back onto the streets again? And it's now Yale and New Haven gonna work more to provide more resources because our police department is strapped. So there are so many questions and I knew it was gonna be an all media blitz because mm -hmm. Kevin was the perfect story to actually get their point across. And so on Saturday night, when I heard it, I knew it was coming. And on Sunday, I received phone calls from either officials saying that they were gonna have this press conference on Monday to discuss the, the crime. And I wanted to make it a point that, listen, we cannot just give all this attention to this particular person where there are other crimes still went unsolved in this city where families are still hurting and families are still in mourning. So although this is a travesty, this young man was just engaged, his life was well ahead of him. I didn't want to feel like that his life had more value than the other lives that were tragically lost in the city as well. But as I started hearing stories about how this murder came to be and how personally I felt it did not really attribute to the violent crime in our city, I wanted that message to get out. Because anytime a violent crime happens in the city, automatically we are under the assumption that an African-American has committed the crime. And that now as a person, I'm on high alert given the resources that may occur or how police may interact with the community now, given that we do have this, this murder and the perpetrator is still on the loose. And so well, for me, to, yeah. it was important for that message to get out as opposed Reverend, to letting people mm -hmm. think that another African-American committed the crime. Reverend Cousin, I wanted to have Paul talk about what you just shared, because even the way when the New York Times came into the city to cover this particular story of Kevin Zhang, the way they tied it to uh, gun violence uh, in the city. Paul, I wanted you to share your thoughts and respond to Reverend Cousin. Well, I agree with everything Reverend Cousin said. <laughs> I don't know, in terms of how the New York Times covered it was um, they said this is a reflects the growing violence. And, you know, I was in conversation with Reverend Cousin and others and the whole community wanted the word out. 
which is a shame we lived that way, that we need to have this word now, but we did, that this wasn't a random act. And of course, the first thing in everyone's mind was, did a, a black kid shoot a Yale? And as, that's, as though that's not okay when it's okay when people get shot in black neighborhoods. The police feel when they're doing an investigation that certain information, if it comes out, will jeopardize an investigation. When they interview witnesses, they don't want witnesses to have read certain information and therefore color, unintentionally usually, color how they respond. If they've read something and they forgot that, they might think they saw something they didn't see. I We always, by default, defer to the police until after an arrest. We do feel comfortable being very critical of police after a threat to public safety has passed. Police in the interim do get our, as reporters, we do defer to them about when they think it's a threat to public safety or an investigation could be compromised, what information comes out. I happen to agree with Reverend Cousin very much in this case. I think often police overestimate for good intentions the need not to have certain information come out and underestimate how important it is to let the community know certain information. And I know in this case, they were struggling with them. The police department, you know, they're, they're very good people. They care about solving the case. They care about bringing justice. It's not like they have a bad intention here. There are cases where individual cops do have bad intentions covering up information that should be out because they want to cover their hides. But in a case like this, they're thinking, how do we get justice? How do we get a killer? How do we keep people safe? And I, I do think that they, some, this is a good example of how it would have been good to let people know sooner that this wasn't what a racist society's initial assumptions of the crime were. But those, these are tough. These are tough balancing acts at, at the time of, of a case. And um, so, yeah, I agree. I agree with Reverend Cousin very much. Reverend Cousin, you talked about uh, resources. I'm wondering if we could peel that back a little bit more, because often when there is a high profile uh, incident like this. Uh, there is talk about um, the uh, police have uh, the right resources to solve the crime. But what about before a violent act is committed? How reporters and newsrooms can uh, go into a community and cover the issues that uh, have uh, come up to the surface? We know in this pandemic, uh, the disparities that have been exacerbated, um, what the policies uh, in our country uh, that lead uh, uh, to certain individuals remaining in poverty and how communities can work to balance those issues and concerns beyond just looking at the latest uh, gun violence statistic. It is so important to have an, a relationship with the media. Um, I, I believe it was said earlier where there is a um, a distrust between the African-American community and the media and law enforcement. And you, you are correct. I do agree with that. But with the media, it's so important to actually have those relationships, be able to get your story out, because the story is going to be told um, with your involvement or not. And I'm always of the mindset that you need to actually be a part of the conversation. And so I, I love Paul because I can always pick up the phone and me and Paul can have a great conversation about the stories that need to be told and the different angles that we need to take a look at. And so for us, I, I think for the media, it's all about ratings too. It's all about who, who actually have the eyeballs on your papers 
or actually on the TV screens. And at times, violence, especially in our cities, um, given what the scenario is, it drives ratings. And so sometimes we do place values on, on other lives and others because what sells. And I think for us, if we're really gonna be true, we really, as African-American community, we want the same treatment. And it doesn't matter if it's you know another ethnic group or what have you, it's everybody gonna be treated fairly across the board. And that's really what they're looking for. That's really what they're expecting. And I really believe if they were to be treated fairly and actually have respect for what's going on in their lives, you would see a much better relationship between communities of color and the media. You can join our conversation as we talk about how gun violence is covered uh, in our communities. You just heard Reverend Stephen Cousin, pastor at Bethel AME Church in New Haven. Paul Bass is also here, editor of the New Haven Independent. Our number, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sean's calling in from Hartford. Sean, go ahead. Yes, um, I wanted to piggyback on what the Reverend was saying. Um, I'm a retired Hartford police officer. And um, I, I think there's a lot of bias um, with the media. Um, I remember uh, arriving on uh, shooting scenes, and sometimes the media will be there before us. And they're always out there, and I always wonder, um, why are you guys out here? You're out here for the, when, when non-whites are killing each other or involved in any kind of shooting. You're here before us sometimes. But when non-whites are graduating high school, getting accepted to pre- prestigious uh, colleges, then you know where to be found. And I just think you're painting these communities in a bad light. There's just not one perspective on these communities. These things happen, but there's also other people, the other lives, there's other greatness involved in these communities, and you guys are only out there to boost those ratings to see people at their worst. Mm. Well, Sean, thank you uh, for uh, your comment. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Paul, earlier, uh, Kelly was talking about in the crime beat, oftentimes it is uh, often the the new reporters uh, that are uh, on the job and learning as they go. And I'm wondering what kind of conversations you have with uh, the journalists that you're training. You've got some great ones. Thank you. And, you know, it used to be true. Now newsrooms are so small. Everyone at a corporate daily is a young reporter because they pay so little. They need a second job at Starbucks to keep the beat. Um, the conversations we have is why does a story matter? And you know what? And I, I love Reverend Cousin, too. And I thought Sean had a great point. Um, it's true about what gets the most clicks. We're finding out, you know, Lucy, you, your organization, ours are nonprofits. So actually more clicks don't get us more money. It's more it's engagement. that gets us money. Right. But I think you might see an evolution in media, even for-profit media, because they're finding out that clicks don't make you money anymore. In the old days, you had to sell papers or get more viewers to get more advertising, if you have an advertising model, and you and I don't have advertising models. But what we found out is that companies now that are trying to convert that to clicks have gone bankrupt. The hedge fund that owns the New Haven Register, or did, went bankrupt twice, thinking if they just boosted eyeballs, they'd get more advertising dollars but in fact we found now that it's gotten so that people click so much but they don't stay with something or engage with material on the web that that doesn't translate into commercial activity they don't buy stuff because they're staring at 10 photos in a photo gallery so i'm hoping that'll change i think nonprofit media but the other thing i want to say is while i agree with sean i agree with you i agree with steve that um that 
we shouldn't be chasing our bones. We should say what should matter. And that's the conversation I have with my reporters, that it does matter violence in a community. We have to talk about how it's being addressed, the facts of what happened. It gets more complicated when you try to put that perspective in practice. Like the woman from Point there, everything she said was true. So what happens when you cover the police? People want to know about crimes in the community. So in New Haven in the past year, there's a white person from the suburbs who has a new business called the On Scene Media. And he just goes to the scene of everything. So when people say, how come you never cover crime in the minority community? He's at every scene. But he gets a lot of blowback, and I think it's justified blowback when people say, you make a scene that all that ever happens in our community is crime, and here you are coming in and just sort of getting people to click on your page because you're showing a scene and the bad things that happen. So on the one hand, it's important when I talk to my reporters that we pay attention to communities and the suffering they have of crime. And and we don't like we never publish mug shots. We don't publish the names of people arrested. And that's a whole separate conversation that I think back to your pointer guest, the way media is relying too much on police in ways without thinking about the humanity of the people affected. But on the other hand, there is a balancing act because you do get it both ways and we should get it both ways. If you don't pay attention to crime in our neighborhood, you say that you're saying you don't care about the human lives lost there. If you do it too much and you don't write stories about people with agency, and the many, many more people engaged in positive activity, in community building, then you're accused of painting a racist picture, accurately accused of painting a racist picture of low-income neighborhoods. Like your guest said, Sean, he was right on. So it's a tough thing. We, we try to address it in certain ways, my reporters. We all try to go to community management teams. Those are, when community policing started in New Haven in the 90s, though I don't know if we're doing so great with it now, we start these community management teams where once a month in every neighborhood, neighbors meet with their police officers. And that grew to become also city officials, code inspectors, politicians, developers. It really became this great grassroots democracy engine. And so one way we try to do it is we see what's on people's mind, how are people responding to them? So we get a real better pulse of what people care about and how it's being addressed. Um, but also it's just a continual balancing act. We don't run out on, we don't usually go to the scenes of murders we do occasionally, but um, we try to have a sense of what's happening every day to let you know what's happening every day. But in every single story with my reporters, young or old, we have the conversation before we write, why does this matter? And to always remember you're writing a story for two audiences. You're writing, first of all, for the reader to inform the public so they have information they need so they can know how to act in a democracy in their lives. And you also have a duty to the people you're writing about to treat them with respect and to see them as human and make sure their voice is heard and that you're not harming their lives. Now, that doesn't mean protecting people who have done wrong, but it does mean being part of a community and always being human. Maybe that's partly the difference of community journalism versus um, sort of corporate media where people just rise from city to city for every few years. But also the thing about the young reporter on the beat, your, your um, pointer person was talking, that's an outdated mode. That's when you had reporters and careers and people spent their time at, at like daily newspapers with 150 people and over the years worked up from this beat to that beat. Now it's a turnstile. You're hearing Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent here on Where We Live, as well as Reverend Stephen Cousin, pastor at Bethel Amy Church in New Haven. We're going to keep talking about this right after the break. Coming up, uh, Connecticut Public Radio also has a newsroom. We invited on Harriet Jones, who's, who is our managing editor, to talk about the decisions our newsroom makes when covering gun violence. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We're talking today about how news media covers gun violence and how these stories affect the public's perceptions about people in our communities. Our guests on Zoom, Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent. Reverend Stephen Cousin is here, pastor at Bethel AME Church in New Haven. And joining us now on the phone is Harriet Jones, managing editor for Connecticut Public Radio. Hi, Harriet. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. So we started the conversation talking about uh, the recent uh, death of Yale graduate student Kevin Zhang, who's gotten a lot that that death getting a lot of attention in not only local media, but uh, national and some international uh, media. I wanted to find out uh, the conversations that you had with uh, our reporters here, including Frankie Graziano, who who covered that early press conference that New Haven police had after Kevin Zhang's murder. And how did you decide to cover this story? Yeah, indeed. It, it is, you know, as, as you've been hearing throughout this hour, it is always a matter of debate uh, in thoughtful newsrooms how to cover this kind of thing. And it's interesting, it's sort of uh, probably about a week before Kevin Zhang's murder, we had covered a press conference given by the Greater New Haven Clergy Association, Boise Kimber is their usual spokesperson. And he had said to us, you know, because to that point, there had been five murders, five shootings in New Haven, which it, you know, was very much greater than the rate of murders in in previous years. So we were trying to figure out, well, what is going on here? And the Reverend Boise Kimber had raised the fact that the, you know, the shooting incidents were trending upwards and what was going on. And we had gone to the mayor for a comment on that press conference. And he had given us, Justin Elker has given us kind of an anodyne comment about the different ways in which they're trying to, you know, uh, address gun violence. Um, But you know, that was really the extent of it. And then when we saw Kevin Zhang's murder, we did see this, you know, kind of full court press, Yale, the police department, the mayor coming out. And we, we said to ourselves, well, what is going on here? What is the, you know, what is the different dynamic around this murder? Is it because Yale is putting pressure on the city to step up to look at if they're doing something because the Yale community is threatened, now feels threatened? Or, you know, what are the what are the dynamics here? What are the choices that are being made here? And we did say, we said to the New Haven Police Department off the record, you know, why are you doing this? And did you press conference any of the other murders in the city before, you know, in 2021 before this? And interestingly, and again, this is off the record, so I'm not going to name any names, but somebody said to us, well, you guys expect us to do this when it's a mm-hmm. Yale person. Mm-hmm. So that kind of speaks to that, you know, that... Um, complicated dynamic where there is blame to go around here. There's blame, you know, on the police department, perhaps on the city for highly highlighting particular murders, but there's also blame on the media because we we do, we're guilty of turning up when it's a certain type of person, if you like. Uh, And Mm -hmm. the police department did express that to us. We're doing this because you expect it. In public radio, we don't often cover crime stories. It is a hit or miss, depending on uh, what's happening, the resources available. Uh, Even when NPR, as I mentioned earlier in the show, when our national editor, when they are interested in a particular story, I'm thinking about the Annie Lay case, uh, the other Yale student that was uh, murdered uh, several years ago. There was the the Wesleyan uh, shooting death of a young woman uh, that happened in Middletown. Uh, When when NPR calls, oftentimes that can also um, lead us to cover a particular story. Uh, but the challenges of that, Harriet, I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we don't do crime in a, in the old kind of TV sense of if it bleeds, it leads. We don't do that kind of sensationalist coverage of crime. We would have to think that there was a public policy or a policy issue to follow. Is, is, the, is the trend of 
gun violence going upwards? And if so, why is it going upwards? That is a typical question that we might try to answer. Is there a public accountability question, such as is there a police shooting? We certainly do put resources into covering certain police shootings when there's a question of, you know, should that violence have happened? Um, so those are the types of things that we tend to ha- cover on gun violence. We actually did have, um, and again, you know, to Paul's question of, of resources, we're a small newsroom, just like Paul's newsroom is small also. So you always have those pressures of where do you put your resources? What types of stories do you cover? What beats do you cover? Um, we were lucky enough in the last couple of years to have a grant-funded position that covered, it was, the grant was called Guns and America, so it covered all different types of um, issues around guns, and certainly gun violence is a big part of that. We actually hired a reporter to do that job. Ryan Lindsay came on and did a, a phenomenal job. And that was an example of, you know, to us of how we could do this in a best practice way. So Ryan actually, you know, made good contacts within neighborhoods where there was gun violence so that she could, you know, be, become that kind of trusted figure. Um, and not just turn up when there's a scene of a crime, but to know people and to be aware of the dynamics in neighborhoods and to be there to be able to say, OK, we do, you know, we're trying to cover, you know, the breadth of life in this neighborhood, not just the gun violence. And that's, you know, if we had the resources to do that all the time, I think that's the best practice we'd want to follow. Mm. Uh, you talked about accountability. That's, uh, again, another uh, focus uh, when we think about the way our newsroom is telling stories uh, um, and how our listeners respond. They're not looking for the latest thing that's happening, but wanting to know more about um, the response and um, if there are discrepancies and, and how uh, these uh, these cases are solved. I mean, these are the things that, uh, again, in public radio, our listeners uh, respect. But I, I wanted to go back to a uh, Reverend Cousin. We just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Reverend Cousin. I, I wanted to ask you about when we think about gun violence as a public health issue, uh, oftentimes the news media putting a disproportionate um, uh, emphasis on fatal and multiple shootings. But when we think about public health crises, uh, maybe there should be other areas that we're focused on beyond gun violence. I wonder if you could talk about that. The one thing that we really don't talk about in the media, especially in the African-American community, is the trauma that is experienced after gun violence. The families that are impacted, um, whether their loved ones are have been lost to gun violence or they've experienced gun violence where even bullets flying through their home, although they went unscathed, you still have trauma after that. And we don't really have methods or resources to treat that trauma. And it actually perpetuates itself in the years to come. And so for us to treat it as a public health crisis, we really have to do more when we talk about mental health, what actually attributes to the health viability uh, of our mindset. And I really believe that the violent crime, sometimes we become desensitized to hearing guns sounded like fireworks every single night where we had a gun range right across the street from our school in New Haven. And we heard kids walking to and from school hearing that gun range go off. That was by our police department. Now, thankfully, they moved the gun range. But just hearing that, we don't understand how kids and young adults are being traumatized and are thinking that things are normal. 
And we need to come out and say as one collective voice that this is not normal. And these are the ways we're going to address that. We should not normalize gun violence or actually have the ability to access guns illegally. And I really think we really want to really address gun violence and really the access of guns in this country, we could be in a much better place. That's Reverend Stephen Cousin, again, pastor at Bethel AME Church in New Haven. Reverend Cousin, that's a good point to end on. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Paul Bass was also here, editor of the New Haven Independent. Uh, Paul, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Always a treat, Lucy. Thanks for having me on with the Reverend Cousin. And Harriet Jones is managing editor for Connecticut Public Radio. Harriet, thanks so much for describing how our newsroom uh, has these kinds of conversations. They're difficult, but necessary. We appreciate your time, Harriet. For sure. You're welcome. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff and Shekinah Collier. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about our show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app.